We're in the book of James, chapter two. The Bible teaches very clearly that faith without works is dead. And it's ludicrous as well, as we've just seen. Today's passage is probably one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament. It's certainly one of the most written about passages in the New Testament. And yet I believe it's potentially one of the most powerful passages in the entire of the New Testament. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Repeat after me. Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or in daily foods, and if one says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without your deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God? Good. Even demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered Isaac on the altar. You see, his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was called God's friend. You see that a person's faith, a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. In the same way, not even Rahab the so was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did for when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Father, I pray today as we study this particular passage in Scripture, I ask Holy Spirit that you'd move among us. I pray you'd bring illumination to our hearts and you'd apply these things to our lives in a very profound way. We ask it in Jesus' name. As I said, these are some of the most debated and controversial passages in the entire of the New Testament because they seem contradictory to what appears elsewhere in the New Testament. Paul the Apostle made great claims. He talks about how we are justified by faith. James here seems to be saying something that's completely different. And you might sit here thinking, well, doesn't bother me. But if you think about it, it has a huge bearing on your life. Massive bearing. So let me just take a moment at the beginning of this message to talk about the controversy and then to answer that controversy. And then to go on from there to talk about false faiths and true faith. And then to end it about looking at a test, how we can test our faith is authentic. So the controversy between Paul and James. What did Paul say? Paul the Apostle in Galatians chapter 2 verse 16 says, Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. All right? So according to Paul, how are you justified? By faith in Jesus Christ. Not by observing the law. So we too put, off, sorry, put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ not by observing the law. <clears throat> because by observing the law, no one will be justified. The word justified is a legal term. It's like, imagine you went to a court case and you were the criminal, but then the judge decided you're guiltless. You're free. You are justified. It's a legal term. It means, <clears throat> as far as we're concerned, it means that we're made right with God. Another way you could say it is, just as if I never sinned, justify. Just as, I, just as if I never sinned. We're made right with God. How do you get right with God? That's a big question. How do you get right with God? According to Paul, you get right with God by believing in Jesus. Now, how does that work? Jesus, born of a virgin, lived sin-free life, hung and died on the cross, the righteous on behalf of the unrighteous. 
the sinless on behalf of the sinner. He took the punishment for us. We experienced the forgiveness. That's amazing. And it's true. When Jesus hung and died on the cross, he paid the price for my sin. And when he rose again, he empowered me to live a new life. That's it. And I believe in him. And as a result, I'm justified. I didn't deserve that. I didn't earn it. But I got it. Now, what does James say that seems to be different to that? Now, just as a a wee aside, some of you here haven't experienced what it means to be justified yet. You don't know that your life is right with God. And whatever you do, the best decision and the biggest decision you could ever make is say a big yes to him and put your faith in Jesus. And the change will take place for you too. You'll be made right with God. Because being right with God, folks, that's the biggie. Stuff can go around the wrong, wrong around you in life, and that's secondary. Things can fall apart in your life, that's secondary. You can have zip in life, but if things are right with you and God's, then that's it. Everything else pales into insignificance. That's the thing that does it. That's the biggie. Then James, what does he say? James says in James 2, 24, as we just read, you see that a person is justified by what, by what he does and not by faith alone. Now that sounds on the surface as a direct contradiction to what the Apostle Paul was saying. James is saying that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Paul says we are justified by faith and not by observing the law. Is this important, Peter? You bet it is. How is it important? This last week, William's daughter, Stacy, is in the Marie Curie Hospital. Stacy got married. I did a wedding ceremony for her and her fiancé, Paul. The doctors have given her days, if not hours. Stacy's lying in that hospital bed with full, utter, complete assurance that if she dies, she knows exactly where she's going. Why? Because in November, Stacey Wells, for the first time, came along to Destiny Church Edinburgh. And she heard some stuff. It went deep. And she made a response to God. Her life was changed from the inside out. And she's been coming to church regularly since then. And she knows, not because she's religious, she knows that because she's put her faith in Jesus, that she's been made right with God. That's the big one. That's the big one. And she knows if she's going to die, she knows exactly where she's going to be. The last breath on this earth will be the first breath in the presence of the eternal God. Right? So is, is this important? Is this a big deal? You bet it is. Because some people think if I just do enough good stuff, then I'll earn God's acceptance. And there's a lot of people believing that. But according to the Bible, there's nothing we can do to earn God's acceptance. We've all sinned and fall way short of God's glory. We've already blown that option. The only hope we've got is that a sinless Savior died on behalf of us sinners so that they can exchange take place. He took the condemnation. He took the punishment. I get the forgiveness. I get the eternal life. How? By my putting my faith in the Savior who died and rose again. And that's Stacey Wells' hope in this moment as we speak. That's it. So this is hugely important. So here are three typical, here are three theological takes on James. Here are the three main arguments of how people try and resolve this conflict that I've just described to you. The first theological argument for James is the faith, faith plus works argument. And it goes like this. That works must be added to faith for faith to become saving faith. So for example, you believe in Jesus. Great. Well, that's a good start. But now you need to start doing good things. And when you do good things plus your faith, then you get to heaven. Then you're justified. That's one theological option of how you resolve this conflict. That one of the main denominations in this world hold to that. Now, we disagree with that. I would disagree with that. The reason is, is that's completely contradictory to what the Apostle Paul said. 
And the Bible doesn't contradict itself. The apostle Paul says, you're justified by faith alone in Christ alone, period. Faith alone in Christ alone. Not faith plus anything. Not Christ plus anything. Just faith alone in Christ alone. The second theological argument people use to try and resolve this conflict is the faith versus works argument. In other words, they say that James is actually wrong. And James is actually contradicting what Paul says. And Paul got it right. One of the person who had these personal feelings about this was a famous man called Martin Luther, who was, because of him, the the whole Protestant Reformation took place. And this is what he said about the book of James. And he saw it as faith versus works. He saw that James was attacking Paul. He said that in the words of St. John's, in, in a word, St. John's gospel and, the, and his first epistle, St. Paul's epistles, especially Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians, and St. Peter's first epistle are the books that show you Christ and teach you all that is necessary and salvatory for you to know. Even if you were to see or hear any other books or doctrine, therefore St. James's epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to these others, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. I disagree with that. Now, I agree with a lot of other things that Martin Luther said, but on that point, he was wrong. So I disagree with this faith faith versus work stance because James and Paul didn't have a conflict. In Acts chapter 15, verses 12 to 21, you find James and Paul actually meeting. It's called the Council of Jerusalem, and it was over this very issue. How does a person get right with God? And James and Paul were not on opposing sides. They were in full agreement. You can read for it yourself in your own time. Also, the, the, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. So James wouldn't have been against Paul. And thirdly, James was writing about 15 to 20 years before Paul even wrote a thing. So James wasn't writing a counter-argument to Paul. The third theological option of how you resolve this conflict is the one that I hold to. And it's faith that works. And the argument goes as follows, that James is not arguing that faith alone saves, but that faith which is genuine and that truly saves is not alone, but is intimately connected with works. John Calvin put it this way. Listen to this. This is a big one. He said, it is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. That's a good thought. It's faith alone that justifies, You believing in Jesus is the only hope for your entire salvation. But faith, that kind of faith, is never alone. That kind of faith acts like it believes. And that's exactly what James is saying. You see, here's a couple of comparisons between the two passages. You've got this in your notes there. Who was was writing here? Paul was writing Galatians 2.16. James was writing in James 2.14-26. The problem was different. Paul was fighting against legalism. James was fighting against laxity. In other words, James was fighting the people who said, oh yeah, just believe God and live as you want. James was fighting those people. Paul was fighting the other extreme, the people who tried to earn God's favor. The use of the word works were entirely different. Paul was using the word works referring to Jewish laws. James was using the word works referring to a Christian lifestyle. Their focus is entirely different as well. Paul was writing about the root of your salvation, which is internal and unseen. James was writing about the fruit of your salvation, which is evident for all to see. The purpose of the writing was different as well. Paul wrote something that was doctrinal about how we should believe. James was writing something about ethics, about how we should live. Paul was writing about how we understand salvation from God's perspective. James was saying we understand what it means to be saved, what a saved person looks like from our perspective. Paul was writing about how I know I am a Christian. James was writing about how I show I am a Christian. Paul was writing about how to become an authentic believer. James was saying how to believe and behave like an authentic believer. No contradiction. Just a phenomenal contrast and an excellent compliment. 
James is a book about holiness. James is a book about our walk, not just about our talk. James is a book about our production, not just our profession. And James is a book about our demonstration, not just our declaration. C.E.B. Cranfield said this, the burden of this section is not, as is often supposed, that we are saved through works, faith plus works, but that we are saved through genuine, as opposed to counterfeit, faith. James was not saying, you're not saved by faith. He was saying that some people, what they call faith, is not saving faith. Did you know that there are false faiths? Now this is devastating. Because some of you in this room think you have faith, but according to James, you might be having a false faith. So let's be incredibly open, allow ourselves to be challenged, because at the end of the day, we want to make sure we've got authentic faith in an authentic Savior. So false faith that James gives us, number one, is this, faith of the mouth. James 2, 14 to 17, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Or in other translations, it says, can that faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily foods, and one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing for the physical needs. What good is this? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. It's not what you say about your faith, but what you do about your faith that counts. The first false faith we become aware of here is the faith of the mouth. People just talking about what they believe rather than living what they believe. Is that real faith? Can such faith save you? The answer is no. In the 1970s, in a theological uh, university department, it was Princeton Theological Seminary in America, uh, there was a story of a professor who decided to test his students who were all trained to become pastors and leaders of churches. He was going to do a preaching exercise with them. And he said, okay, I want you all to go away this week and prepare a message that I want you to preach on uh, the Good Samaritan. So I want you to all go away and prepare a message on the Good Samaritan. So they all went and they came back next week all prepared with their messages to preach on the Good Samaritan, which they were going to preach in the class that day. When they arrived at the class that day, there was a sign up saying, uh, we're really sorry, we've had to move the class to the other side of campus Uh, class will start on time so you need to rush across campus as quick as you can and get there for the beginning of class so the students thought oh sugar it kind of ruffled them a bit so they were dashing across campus now what they didn't know is the professor had got an actor to stage an accident on that route between the first location and where the, the lecture was relocated to so this actor lying at the side of the pavement in agony while the students are trying to rush past to get to the next location. Now, the parable of the Good Samaritan that they were going to preach on was all about that. It was all about the guy who who got lynched and mobbed and nutted and left dead at the side of the roads, and then the priest walks by, right on by, and then the Levi goes by, right on by, and then the Samaritan, not the Samaritan, yeah, the Samaritan, the Samaritan goes by and Samaritans, Jews hated Samaritans. So when Jesus was saying this parable, it was utterly controversial. So the Samaritan goes by and instead of walking on by, as the Jews would have expected him to do, the Samaritan was the one that showed love and mercy. Anyway, that was for the message they were going to preach on. And 90% of the students walked right on by the actor. One of them even stepped over the actor. <laughs> Faith of the mouth. You're saying something, but your lifestyle is entirely contrary to the faith you claim to have. You see, this is not so bad because it's not credible and phony. I mean, it's bad because it's not credible and phony. But that's not the most devastating part of it, folks. It's bad because it's not credible and phony. But you know what's most devastating about this kind of faith? Is can that faith save you? It's bad enough that it's not credible and it's phony. But what's worse is it offers you no eternal hope. You're deluded in thinking you've got faith, but the reality is you've just got talk. Jesus addressed this as well. 
Matthew 7, 21 to 23. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons and perform great many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Man, I don't want any of you to be in that category. Now, I want us to see miracles. I want us to cast out demons. I want us to see the sick healed. And I want you to call them Lord, Lord. But I also want you to know him. And I want your actions to line up with your confession. He said, away from me, evildoers. He said, only the ones who do, do the will of my Father. If faith doesn't translate into action, it's not real faith. It's faith of the mouth. Larry Flint, the publisher of Hustler, 20 years ago publicly made a declaration. I'm a born-again Christian. And he went right on printing Hustler and other pornographic films and materials in America. His profession made no difference to his life. Faith of the mouth is not saving faith. According to James, faith of the mouth is dead. It's non-existent. It's not even alive. Whether it was even alive in the first place, we don't know. But either way, it is deceased. Make sure if you're going to talk about your faith that your life's as big as you talk. False faith number two. Faith of the mind or demon faith. James 2, 19 to 20. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Demons actually have outstanding theology. It's true. They really do. They, they are incredibly academic. They can tick a lot of the theological boxes that we would want them to tick. Very astute. Here's some examples. In the Bible, demons believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Mark 3.11. Demons believe in Judgment Day and the eternal punishment of sin, Luke 8, 31 and Matthew 8. Demons believe that Jesus is the Holy One of God, Mark 1, Luke 4, 33 to 34. Demons believe that Jesus became fully man, Luke 11, 33 and 34. And demons knew that Jesus was the Messiah, Luke 4, 41. Demons believe in submission to Jesus as the Son of the Most High, Luke 8, 26 to 28. According to James, demons believe in one God. That's called monotheism. We believe in one God, not many gods. We believe in one God. Christians, Jews, Muslims are monotheists. We believe in one God. Demons are also monotheists. Demons have great theology. What you know about God, what you understand about God, what you can quote about God, what you've grasped about God has no bearing whatsoever on whether or not you've got authentic faith. You get a faith of the mind or demon faith. If it doesn't go from here to here, then you're left untransformed and you're left just as lost except you think you're not. And that's devastating. Knowledge is not your ultimate goal. Knowing him is your ultimate goal. A lot of people know a lot of stuff about God. Fewer know him. Know, me knowing about my wife isn't going to give me the relationship that I yearn for on the inside. Me knowing my wife, that's a different kettle of fish. Faith of the mind. Third false faith is faith of the emotions. It says in James 2, 15 to 16, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily foods, and if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, and does nothing for his physical needs, what good is that? You know, you, you see someone in needs, you, you kind of moved on the inside, you feel, oh man, I want, to, I want to help them, and you feel sentiment, and you even admit that sentiment, and you communicate that sentiment to them. You're feeling compassion, you're feeling emotion, but you do zip about that emotion. It's like the people who watch the television and see things that trouble them, but then flick channels. They're moved, their emotions are moved, but it doesn't touch their life. It doesn't transform them. They're emotional. 
Now, it's good to be emotional. It's good to be in touch with your emotions. It's also good to be in touch with your mouth and your minds. But these are the things that are not going to ultimately change your life or give you an eternal life. Faith of the emotions by itself is not true faith. Faith of the emotions, you're moved. It's like you go out of here today, you get into your car, and you know, an accident happens, you, you shove the door shut and your finger's there and it's locked. <laughs> you're, ah! Ah! Wah! And you're, your fingers are in the door. And, <laughs> and I walk by and say, man, I feel for you. <laughs> oh, dude, I'm with you in it. Oh, I can... It's like I feel it myself. Ah, boy, you little... Man, gee, anybody look at this guy? He's a goal. Right, you don't say it. You zip to help. And you think, that's ludicrous. You're emotionally moved, but you do zip about it. Faith of the emotions. It must go more than that. James 2.19 say, you believe that God is one? Good. Even demons believe that and shudder. Demons sense an emotion in the presence of God. Demons have a fearful emotion in the presence of God. And yet, they are demons and distant from God. You know, an emotion about God, an emotion about truth, isn't going to change your life. It might be the beginning of your life changing, but it's what you do with that is what counts. Faith of the emotions. Did you know that According to Tear Funds in 2007, 53% of the UK would claim to be Christians. That's 26.2 million adults in the UK. I don't think they've all got authentic faith. I don't think everyone in this room has got authentic faith. Some of us are struggling with faith of the mouth. We talk the talk, but it hasn't impacted our life. Faith of the mind, we know stuff. Or faith of the emotion, and we even feel moved about the stuff we know. And it's the same in the UK. James says, can such faith save him? When the Bible talks about justification by faith, it's not talking about the faith of the mind, faith of the mouth, or the faith of the emotions. It's talking about justification by authentic faith. So here's real and saving faith according to James. James 2, 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Real faith is active faith. Saving faith is active faith. It's not neutral. How can you believe in God Almighty and he know his love for you and then just live like it's not the case? It's impossible. Either you ain't fully grasped it or there's a screw loose in your head. If you grasp God and you think, man, it's God we're talking about. How can you then just say, all right then, I'll just live as I was. Impossible. He's either God or he's not. And if he's God, then boy, live like he's God. Live with faith in him. You can't, you, honestly, I, I question whether you've connected with God if you've remained unchanged. Because God is so awesome. Real faith is active faith. James then uses two illustrations to talk about this kind of faith. He gives us two people, Abraham and Rahab, both of them very opposite extremes. I think he did that deliberately because he wanted to let you know that everyone's on, the board, on, on this boat if you're truly believing. You see, Abraham and Rahab, here's some contrasts for you. Abraham is a man, Rahab is a woman. All right, some differences there. But that's another sermon. Abraham is a Jew, Rahab is a Gentile. Abraham is a patriarch, Rahab is a prostitute. Abraham is a somebody, Rahab is a, is a nobody. Abraham is a major character in the Bible and Rahab is a minor character in the Bible. But I'll tell you what they've got in common. They've got authentic faith in common. They're authentic believers. You know what else they've got in common? They both appear in the family genealogy of Jesus Christ. Amazing. Very contrasting people. But the same faith. Same justification. Same made right in the sight of God. Okay, Abraham. James 2, 21 to 23. Was not our ancestor Abraham 
considered righteous by what he did when he offered Isaac on the altar. You see that faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete. Say complete. By what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, he was justified. And he was called God's friend. Amazing. Abraham was called. He was an old guy by the time he was called. He was called to leave his homeland and go to a promised land. That was a big step of faith for an old guy to take. Yet he uprooted and followed. He believed God. And he took lots of steps of faith. God told him he'd have a child, Isaac. And as you saw so vividly described earlier, Abraham and Sarah must have been figuring out how is this going to happen? You know? But nevertheless, by faith, and by them doing a few things. (laughs) But that's another sermon. It happens. Abraham then, having had Isaac, God called him to sacrifice his own son. Incredible. On Mount Moriah. And he took him up to the top of the hill. And he was about to sacrifice him in obedience to what God had called. But God said, stop. And he had to stop Abraham right in this first step. And you know what? From mountains of Moriah, just so you know, you can see Golgotha from there. See, God never asked Abraham to do what God himself wasn't willing to do. And God literally caused his own son to suffer and die on behalf of a world. Abraham was a man of faith. His faith didn't, wasn't just a mind thing, wasn't just a talk thing, wasn't just an emotional thing. Abraham's faith resulted in colossal life implications and change. Notice it says, Abraham's faith was made complete by what he did. The word complete in the Greek language is teleo, which means to complete, to accomplish, to finish, and to fulfill. His faith was fulfilled. His faith was completed. The full stop in his faith was put there by him doing stuff with his faith. It wasn't that it was faith plus works. It was the fact that true faith but was complete because it just expressed itself naturally in works. True faith resulted in works. Then there's Rahab's example. <clears throat> it says in James 2, 25 to 26, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Rahab. Now, she was a prostitute. That's what the Bible says. Some scholars have tried to figure out what that word means, and uh, they all figured out, yeah, it means prostitute. She was a prostitute. And she lived in a place called Jericho, and God had commanded God's, his own people, the Israelites, to go and to decimate Jericho and to take the land. They were wicked people. And in Jericho, there was this lady Rahab and she'd heard that God's people were coming and she knew what, she knew what God's purpose was. And instead of, like many of the others in that city, just ignoring the realities, she chose to believe. And when the spies from the Israelites came to the spy at the city, she knew who they were she gave them lodging. She protected them. She made sure they weren't caught. And it, according to the Bible, it was an act of faith. This wasn't some corruption thing she was doing. She was acting in faith. And according to the Bible, because of her faith, she was made right in the sight of God. And we also know that she got her life right. She got married. She married an Israelite man. She had a son, and he had a son, and he had a son, and they had a son, and they had a son. And eventually Jesus Christ was born in the family line of a prostitute. By faith. And the faith, God says, you're righteous. But I'm a prostitute. You're righteous. But I've done such horrendous things. I've used and abused others. I've allowed myself to be used and abused. I've sold sex for money. You're righteous. I don't deserve that. You're righteous. Incredible. And true faith expressed in action. Because true faith cannot help itself but express itself in action. Abraham and Rahab both had authentic faith in common and their faith caused them to lead a life that times took great risks. The picture behind me is of a man called Blondin. <clears throat> in the 19, no, it's not 1950s, it's in 18, 1859, Blondin strung a tightrope from the Canadian side of the Niagara Falls to the American side of the Niagara Falls. 
It was an 1,100-foot rope, 150 feet off the ground. He walked across in front of huge crowds that watched him inch himself edge by edge across that precarious walk. He got to the other side, and as he stepped onto the other side, the crowds erupted. As the crowd erupted, he quietened them down and says, do you believe I can do it again? And they all cheered even louder. And you know what? He did try it again. In fact, he, he did it several times. He did it once with a blindfold. He did it once on stilts. And then eventually, the crowds were going ballistic. And eventually, he hushed the crowds down again, having arrived back in the bank again. And said, do you believe I can do it again, carrying someone on my back? The crowd said, we believe, we believe. Everyone started chanting, we believe, we believe, we believe. And he hushed the crowd. said, right, who would like to come on my back? Silence. <laughs> Eventually, one guy got out of the crowd. He said, I'll do it. So of all the people who claimed to have faith, of all the people who were stirred mentally by what they saw and knew was possible, of all the people who felt an emotion about the whole situation, one person had authentic faith and stepped out and put the faith in this man, Blondin. And they got from one side to the other. I put my faith in a man called Jesus Christ. And my faith in Jesus Christ gets me from one side to the other. Gets me across a chasm that I couldn't have bridged myself called sin. That chasm was devastating. It would have taken me, this wretched little man, to hell. I was hellbound. I was a nobody. And God saved me. And I put my faith in Jesus, the one who died and rose again. And in him, he gets me to the other side. He's my entire hope. I don't even put a little bit of hope on how good I am. I've got no hope in that. My faith is entirely in Jesus. And do you know what? As a result, I live differently. How could I not? I'm so grateful to him. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your... Trust in the Lord with all your... Trust in the Lord with all your... Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your... The Bible teaches that true faith is heart faith. You see, many people in Britain are going to miss heaven by 18 inches. The distance between here and here. And that's horrendous. Because many people think they're believers, but their lives are the same. They haven't authentically believed. Many people are moved about the possibility of God, but their lives are lost. Many people know stuff about God, and this is the worst. Because they ought to know better. But they remain unchanged. True faith saves. And true faith acts like it believes. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith, Destiny Church. Test yourself. Do you not realize that Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Test your faith. This is not an ultimate test, but I'm going to give you three things you can do to test your faith. Number one, is my faith saving faith? Ask yourself. James 2.14, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Listen to this quote. Satan is the master deceiver. Since salvation is through faith, it's not surprising that he works overtime to lead people astray in the matter of saving faith. If Satan can get someone to think that he will get into heaven because of his many good deeds apart from faith in Christ, he is perfectly content to watch that person devote his entire life to good deeds. Or if a person who has been born or raised in a church thinks, I'm going to heaven because I believe in Jesus as my saviour, but his faith is merely intellectual and doesn't affect his daily life, then Satan is happy with such false faith. Are you saved? Are you saved? It's the biggest question. You know what? If you're saved, then a process will be taking place in your life just now. It's called sanctification. You see, God loves us so much, he accepts us as we are. But he loves us too much to leave us as we are. When he gets a grip in my life, do you know what? He didn't just save me, but he changes me. And if there's no change, then I question whether there's any salvation. If you say, well, I believed in Jesus 15 years ago, I got saved then. 
I've lived like the devil since, sure, but no, I got saved 15 years ago. And you are the most selfish, into yourself, unrighteous reprobate going. Then I seriously question whether you got saved 15 years ago. You might have had some sort of mental assent to God, some sort of emotional feeling in that moment. But if you were saved, then your faith would act like it believes. And if you're living the same as you were when God found you, then you're not saved. That's not saving faith. According to James, what good is it, my brothers, if man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? And the answer is no. Test number two. Is my faith visible faith? James 2.18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without your deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. Demonstrate it. Mark, Jesus says this in Matthew 5.16. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You know, if we were to interview your family, if you were to interview my family, if we were to interview our work colleagues, if you were to interview the people you're around on a daily basis and ask them how much evidence is there for this person's Christianity, would they, A, know that you're a believer? And would they, B, have a good impression of what being a believer looks like? True faith is seen. D.L. Moody said this, out of 100 men, one will read the Bible and 99 will read the Christian. You see, folks, faith is like calories. You can't see them, but you can sure see the results. <laughs> Jimmy Carter, in his book, uh, he said this about his, a big change in his life. He said, one of the things that was a turning point in my life was when someone asked me the question, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If faith doesn't change you, then I have to question, what kind of faith have you got? There was a lady one day, and she was in a line of traffic, sitting at a traffic light that just turned red, and there was a guy in front of her. She was sitting there quite peacefully. <clears throat> the light turns, and uh, the guy didn't move. So she started getting irate. She started, honk, honk. She, he just he just blanked her totally. So she started, honk, honk. just blanked her completely. So she started going ballistic. Honk, 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 honk. Yeah, shouting and swearing and cursing and vehemently out the window. The whole deal. Everything was coming out of this lady's mouth, right? And man, he was getting it. An earful. The guy was totally oblivious to it. And then it kind of came out of his wee daydream. Noticed the green light. Oh, and he drove off. And then the light turned red and she was stuck at the lights. And she was... And she was doing the whole deal. She was vehement. In the middle of all this cursing and swearing, a policeman appears at her window. Hi, officer. Hi, officer. She says, Hello, ma'am. Says the policeman, He said, Could you please step out of the car? And she steps out of the car and he handcuffs her. He says, I must take you to the police station for questioning. He took her to the police station. When they got there, they get, took her fingerprints, took her photographs, and then sent her to a prison cell. In the prison cell, she's thinking, What on earth has gone wrong? After several hours, the policeman calls her back and says, I do apologize, lady. There has been a, a real misunderstanding. You see, when I saw you shouting and swearing and cursing at the man in front, and then I looked at your car, and there was a fish in the back, and there was a bumper sticker saying, don't follow me, follow Christ. I assumed, this must be a stolen car. So I arrested you, and having done a lot of research, I've discovered that actually there's been a big misunderstanding. It actually is your car. I'm very sorry. Here's your keys back. If faith does not change your life, then you ain't got the real deal. And you ain't met the real God. But that can change today. Test number three. Does my faith motivate me to practically serve and love others? True faith always meets the practical needs of others. James 2, 15 to 18. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily foods. If one says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, 
is dead. The Apostle John writes the same in 1 John 3, 16 and 17. This is how we know what love is. Christ Jesus laid down his life for us. We ought laid also our lives down for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need and takes no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? True faith will motivate you to meet the needs of others. Around the world today, there are phenomenal aid organizations. The vast majority of them motivated by authentic believers. 80% of the aid supplied after the following the tsunami was from authentic Christian believers. You'll see a little thing on your resource sheet there. You can follow this up, check it out. On Times Online, there's an article by Matthew Paris, who's an atheistic uh, journalist, and he says, and his, his title is, Why is an atheist, I believe, Africa needs God? And he stands back as an atheist and says, Do you know what? Christianity, if it was removed from Africa, Africa would suffer greatly. True faith acts like it believes. True faith meets needs. True faith meets needs. What kind of good deeds is James talking about? Is James talking about, okay, do good deeds like, well, turn up at church. Mm-hmm. Read your Bible. Be pious. Do religious activities. Don't go to the nightclubs. Mm-hmm. Right? Is that what James is talking about? Do good deeds. Well, let me sum it up for you. This is what Paul says about these good deeds. Galatians 5, 6. And this is a big, important verse in the context of what we're talking about today. For in Christ Jesus, there's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. It means anything. But faith working through love. Faith without works is dead. Faith working through love. Or another translation says, faith expressing itself through love. That's your summary. Go do that. From now till death. That's it. Go do that. Believe and love. That's it. True faith will express itself in love. It's impossible to have self-centered faith. But tragically, many people have it, but it's not true faith. You see, many people have believed in God because come to God, you get a new life. Come to God, you're happy. Come to God, you'll get stuff. Come to God, you can have a this and this. and That's it. So their faith is purely about what they can get from God. But according to the Bible, true faith expresses itself in love. It's a give thing. Now, I believe when you come to God, you can be healed. I believe that. I believe when you come to God, you can be prospered in the right sense. I believe when you come to God, you can be provided for. Absolutely. I believe that totally. Why? It's in the Bible. You'd have to be blind not to see it. He wants to bless you. But true faith is not taking. True faith is giving. Faith, true faith, expresses itself in love. (laughs) When you come to faith, wow, you do get blessed and you do get provided for and you do get healed and it is great. But you didn't come to him because of that. You came to him because he's God. So I've got some questions for us. As a test, are we dealing with our private and sin- private sinful practices? Question. Is your faith motivating you to deal with your life? Has your lifestyle and morality changed since believing in Jesus? Do you ever tell anyone that you're a believer and tell people how great God is? Since believing in Jesus, have you been a slightly better husband or wife? Have you treated your kids differently or your parents differently? Has it had any bearing at all on family life? Since believing in Jesus, had you handled your money differently? Since believing in Jesus, have you changed the way you treat poor people and people in need? Since believing in Jesus, have you changed the way you approach church? And I'm not talking about, I'm there every Sunday. I'm not talking about that. Church is not a thing. It's not a thing you attend. It's his people. I'm talking about, are you committed to his people? Or do you just bump into them every Sunday? Every, oh, hi, you're one of us. Yeah, oh, yeah. Or are you saying, I pray for them. I love them. I give to them. I meet their needs. 
This is my family. I take it personally. True faith will have legs. Let me give you a summary verse here. And this, to me, this verse sums up everything we've said. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Paul says you're justified by faith. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself, it's a gift of God. Not by works, at least anyone should boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're not saved because we do good stuff. We do good stuff because we've got authentic faith. And as a result of our authentic faith, the overflow is God has got great works planned beforehand for you to walk in. You go for it. Go find those good works this week. Go live that authentic faith this week. Go let God be glorified through your life, through your words, through your attitudes this week. Notice the order. It says, by grace, through faith, to do good works. Not the opposite way around. Religion puts it the opposite way around. You do good things, and then you have faith, and then you get accepted. God puts it this way around. God's grace towards you. You respond by faith to that grace. And an overflow of that faith is you live differently. Okay, Peter, I've got it today, so I know what I should do. I've got to decide to do some good stuff now. Now, I believe in God, sure, but I've got to decide to do some good stuff now. I I hear the message, Peter. No, no, you ain't heard anything. That's not what I'm saying. That's faith plus works. And it's faith plus nothing, folks. It's only faith. If you're not already living differently as a result of your faith, then I'm not asking you to add faith works to that faith. I'm saying you got the wrong faith in the first place. I'm saying get right back down to the foundation and have authentic faith in God. Because when you've got authentic faith in God, you don't need to worry about doing good stuff. It will be a natural overflow because you're a changed person. Let's pray. Just take a moment in his presence. Talk to him about some of the things we've heard today. Just in your own way, respond to God. Father, I'm really concerned for our lives. That God, it could be that we've been having the wrong kind of faith. And God, it could be that in our, in our city, in our nation, there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, who've got the wrong kind of faith. And God has given them false hope. God, my prayer is that every person in this room come to have the right kind of faith, true faith, saving faith, active faith. I pray, God, through the impact of the church here, please, please, God, let us see true faith in thousands of people's lives in Edinburgh and globally. In Jesus' name. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to God just now. I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond to God in two ways. Some of you here have thought you've had true faith. But you realize now, and it's devastating, but you realize now it's been faith of the minds, faith of the emotion, or faith of the mouth. And today, it's time you had saving faith. And some of you need to come to have saving faith for the very first time. It's the real stuff. It's not the stuff that's put many off Christianity. It's the stuff that Jesus found in his followers. It's the real McCoy. 
Spirit, I want to say to all of you, give your life totally, unreservedly to God. Put your faith completely in Christ alone, Savior of the world. So if you've never put your faith in Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to do that just now. If that's you, I invite you to repeat this prayer after me. Let this be the prayer from the bottom of your heart. So if that's you, repeat this prayer after me. Quietly under your breath, pray, Dear Lord God, I want to thank you that you're the true God. You are holy, you're amazing, you're the creator. God, I acknowledge I need you in my life. To be honest, I can't live without you. God, I want to thank you for sending your son. Jesus, I'm so grateful to you for dying on the cross for my sins to be forgiven and for rising again. And God, I acknowledge I am a sinner and I need forgiven right now. I put my faith in you, Savior. Forgive me and justify me. Make me righteous. Make me right in the sight of God. Thank you. And Jesus, I believe that you're alive now and you're risen. And I make you the Lord of my life. I pledge my allegiance to you. From here on in, I'm going to follow you to the best of my ability. I want to live an authentic life before you. Not just today, but from now on every day till the day I die and meet you face to face. Thank you, God, for hearing my prayer and for accepting me today as your child. Amen. Keep your eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer and that was you for the first time connecting with God, I'd love the privilege of praying for you and asking God to bless you. While everyone else's eyes are closed, if you prayed that prayer, in order to know who I'm praying for, can you simply raise your hand? Is there anyone like that today? Just raise your hand. Thank you. Anyone else? I'll wait for Thank you. Anyone else? Put your hand up nice and clear so I can see you. Thank you. Anyone else? God, into these lives, I pray, Father, that they would know your love. I pray right now they'd know your total acceptance. I pray from this day forward, they would connect so strongly with you that they would never be the same again. Bless them. Help them. In Jesus' name. Okay, eyes closed. Keep your eyes closed. If today you're saying, Peter, I now rededicate my life to God and I put true faith in the living God today then I want to pray for you while everyone else's eyes are closed you raise your hands now I'm going to pray for you keep your hands up see all these hands all over the place I'm just going to pray for you God I pray today as these dear friends are saying an utter yes to you I thank you that you accept them you embrace them and the reason James has even written those things was for them because you didn't want them going along deceived you didn't want them deluded into thinking they were connected with you when they weren't I pray today, God, you turn things around. Let their faith totally impact every aspect of their life. Let true faith arise in their heart and let them thrive in their walk with you. Bless them, God. Fill them, Holy Spirit, right now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to worship God.
you know, um, those people who put their hands up at the end there, you've done a great thing. The people who made that commitment for the first time, the people who, the few folks who put their hands up at the beginning, I'm going to get some prayer partners to come and talk to you and pray with you again. Please don't rush off. We've got a pamphlet we want to give you explaining steps to take as a, as a believer. Let's worship God.